reading this morning is from Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Should you eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals? But you, you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, all shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and will look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and, they will, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. 
He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forests in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit, and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, you, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Amen. Father, thank you that you have made us into your people because of your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we pray reliant on you in every way. And thank you for both the humbling effect of your word, but also the way in which it elevates us as your people. And grant us, we pray, as we open it again today, right understanding and a response that brings us afresh under the lordship of Jesus, that we might live through him to your praise and glory. Amen. So I hope you've still got Ezekiel 34 open. And as with the last two talks, if you want to follow in terms of where we're going roughly, there are the titles that are in the booklet for the weekend. And if you've looked at that, you'll see that the title for the talk that I've given is The God Who Rescues. And I guess as Christians, and most of us I think here are Christians, that we're quite familiar with the idea of the God who rescues. We sing, don't we, songs again and again of the rescue. You alone can rescue, you alone can save, to you alone belongs the highest praise. And I have no doubt that when we sing those words, we are really engaging both our hearts and our minds. But there's a danger too, isn't there? And the danger is that we become very familiar with our salvation. Perhaps we might say even over-familiar. And because of that, I want us to imagine for a moment that we're living not now, but at the time of Ezekiel. We've had 24 chapters in Ezekiel of what is predominantly God's judgment. God's judgment on his people for their sin. The God who speaks, the one whose glory and majesty and power that we saw revealed, is the God who speaks in judgment to his people. And after 24 chapters of that, more or less... We find these desperate words. Just flick back to chapter 24. Chapter 24 and verses 1 and 2. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, 
record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. You'll recall that Ezekiel was in the first wave of those exiles, but back in Jerusalem, the temple and the city were still standing, albeit not nearly as strong and with a puppet king in place. But now, nine years after that first deportation, there's a date that has to be recorded in the history of the people of God because it is the day when the king of Babylon laid siege to the city. All that God has said would happen has now begun to happen. Judgment is falling on Israel. And three years later, there is another report that Ezekiel hears. It happens just before the chapter we've had that's been read. Chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 21. Another time marker is given. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month of the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. It's a devastating reality, isn't it? A message that the city was under siege, and now, three years later, there's a message the city has fallen. And it's not just the devastation of the destruction of bricks and mortar, though that would be serious. But God says that what he would do to his people, he has done. Remember those pictures early on in that strange early days of Ezekiel's ministry? As he made the model and cut his hair and did funny things with burning the hair and chopping it around the city? Pictures of what would happen. And now, if you look at chapter 33, it has. Verse 27. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those out in the country I will give to the wild animals to be devoured. And those in strongholds and caves will die of the plague. I will make the land a desolate waste, and her proud strength will come to an end. And the mountains of Israel will become desolate, so that no one will cross them. Then they will know that I am the Lord." When I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things that they have done. God had said this would happen because of their sin. And perhaps in a sort of blasé acceptance, they said, oh yeah, yeah, of course, but we've got, a, we've got a covenant God, all will be well. And now there is utter, utter destruction and devastation. The diagnosis of God was right, but the prognosis of God was right and his words did not fail. And let's try and get our minds into the fact of how incredibly difficult this would have been for people to grasp. Because the people of Israel were very complacent with the promises of God. And you'll remember that the way the Bible works is that we're presented in the first few chapters of a picture of the world in rebellion against God. And that God breaks into that world and makes a promise. To a world under curse, I'll bring blessing. And through you, I'll bring blessing to a cursed world. I will make you into a people and I will give you a land of your very own. And later to that added a promise of a king whose rule will be everlasting. And then God comes to dwell in the physical temple symbolically. His glory there as they are in Jerusalem. A land, blessings, temple, a people, a king. And when God made the promise, he made it unconditionally. So when you and I make a promise, we might shake a hand, we might make a contract. In the ancient world, covenants were sealed with blood and the picture was brutal but clear. So that if I made a, 
an agreement with someone, I would nip out and get a wood pigeon and chop it in two. And I'd put the two parts apart and I'd walk through them and you'd walk through them to say that if I break my part of the bargain, what's happened to the wood pigeon should happen to me and vice versa. And yet when God seals the covenant with sacrifice that he makes of that promise back in Genesis, you'll remember that Abraham falls into a sleep. And he's sitting by these sacrifices all day that have been split in two. And then God symbolically passes through. Not Abraham, God. All Abraham has to do is accept it, trust it, believe it. God has committed himself to land and blessings and people and descendants and then a king. And now in Ezekiel 33, what's happened? It's gone. The whole order's gone. And you're bound to ask, haven't you? Look, God, I thought your promises were unconditional. And yet they seem to have collapsed. And it's no wonder, is it, that in that situation there are going to be some very big questions asked of God. Is he real? Can I trust his word? Or more importantly, perhaps, if he has acted like this because of my sin, because of me, is there any hope? Is there any way back? Now, I don't know that we're going to have quite the same kind of questions today or from the same spiritual depths. But we may still at times have the same questions about God and his word or sin and its significance. So it's all very well, isn't it? And it's lovely when we're all together. We're all like-minded. But we look out on the world or other churches or people we've known. And the great promises of God through the Lord Jesus, picking up the Abrahamic promises to build his church, then always seem as if in reality they are what they're supposed to be. So we hear of great churches that were once strong. And now they're nowhere. They might be historically. If you go to Ephesus, it's very striking. You can look out at what was the old port silted up, but what was once a vibrant church is no more. You look at North Africa and the great swathes of Christendom. And they were just pretty much trounced, trumpled in the 7th, 8th, ninth century. Or more in our own experience, we look at churches once vibrant, but they're slowly softened in their spiritual concern. Their desire to put the word of God central and therefore the truth of God and God himself centrally. Their concern for holiness just drifts and they eventually collapse. And you say, Lord, are you really going to build your church? Why does this happen? Or the world around, as the world in Ezekiel's day, looking powerful, triumphing, trampling over the few vestiges of the Christian faith in our country. Is God real? Is he really sovereign? Does he rule the world? Will the Lord Jesus really build his church? Or the individual who recognizes all too acutely their sin and wonders in desperation, Lord, can I ever be forgiven? How will the God who has acted in judgment, righteous judgment, the God of power and majesty and might, who speaks and speaks in judgment, bring us, bring them back from this? And as those questions, those spiritual existential questions, reach their all-time desperation, their all-time low in chapter 33, we find ourselves moving from desperation to hope. As the God who has spoken in judgment speaks now of what he will do in salvation. This is the God who rescues. And as he speaks of his rescue... We discover what he is going to do. First, we're told, he will remove those who have led people into this mess. 
He'll remove those who've led people into this mess. Let's have a look now at chapter 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Now, in many ways, when you read this passage, the identity of the shepherds is not immediately made clear. We do discover that they rule, and we also discover that the replacement shepherd will be a king. And that's a bit of a clue, because when we look back into the Old Testament, it was the kings who were often referred to as shepherds in Numbers, in 1 Kings, and in Genesis. And ultimately, it was the king under God who had to lead the people and teach the people and shape the people in right understanding, even though that was a shared and in part delegated responsibility. Not only that, but also in Babylon, the same idea was that kings were shepherds. One of their phrases, their sayings was this, a people without a king is like a sheep without a shepherd. So it was the king who was supposed to teach the people and model obedience, even if delegated. But instead, what have the kings historically done? They have both exploited and neglected the sheep, the people. And using the metaphor of sheep, we're seeing what that exploitation and that neglect looked like. In regards to the exploitation... If you want some alliteration, they use the sheep for curds, for clothing, and for chops. Sorry about that. Verse 3. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? Verse 2. You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. They just take what they want for themselves. Rather than serving and teaching, they exploit and take. With regards to neglect... They have clearly failed to care for them. Again, verse 3. You do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. They've been neglected. They've been exploited. And the result, verse 5, say they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains. And on every high hill, they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched for them or looked for them. Now, I don't know if uh, in London you get to see greenery very much. You know, some of you may near live live, uh, Clapham Common or somewhere like that, and the odd tree is a great delight. I lived in London for a very short while, and I realized you missed the seasons. But if you're out in the hills, you not only see the seasons, you see the sheep. And if you're in, uh, near the Lake District where I used to live or in Scotland where I've uh, walked a bit or even on Dartmoor, you find sheep. And sometimes you find beautifully looked after sheep. But not long ago, my wife and I were walking in not very a remote part of Dartmoor and we came across dead sheep. One, there was fresh blood trickling from the eye, which means a crow had poked out the eyeball after it had died. They do that. Another one was uh, rotting, a carcass and bones. And the thought that went through my mind, because this was close to a road and close to a sheep feeding point, is doesn't the shepherd know? Doesn't the farmer know? And probably the answer was no. But here in this picture, the exploitation was yes. They knew and they didn't care. Because all they were interested in was taking the sheep for the wool to make clothing, to make the dairy products, 
and because they enjoyed eating roast lamb. And what God will do to people who act like that, these kind of leaders, these kinds of kings, these kinds of teachers, is he will remove them. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for the flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. At the end of the day, the good news is this. God will not let his people go on forever under false leadership. He will not let his people go on forever in sin. They may have moved a long way from the truth. They may have begun all kinds of erroneous practice and had erroneous thinking. That may have gone on for hundreds of years. They may be under the hand of the judgment of the judgment of God, or it may be that authentic members of God's people may be treated very badly, despite their pursuit of godliness. But God will one day deal with false teachers. He will remove them. And although we live the other side of the cross, that is a great comfort for us. Because we live in a situation where false teachers and confusion abounds. I'm always very struck by the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy from prison. You know, it goes so much against the grain, doesn't it? Because he's saying, I'm in prison because of the gospel and people are ashamed of me and the gospel. All of Asia have deserted me. When I was first up before the authorities, no one came to my defense. But he says... You do exactly what I've done. You teach people rightly. Even though all around people will gather it, it teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It means the experience, even the other side of the cross, is going to be mixed. And within that mixture, as it were, we're going to have people who teach falsely and lead falsely. And we're going to have, therefore, sheep who are badly treated, neglected, exploited, and who wander all over the face of the earth. It's interesting that when Luther wrote his treatise of what was going on in the church in the 16th century, one of them he called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. What a brilliant title. It's different post-cross, but actually before the return of the Lord Jesus, we experience similar things. And the good news is God will not let it go on forever. God will remove false teaching, false leadership, wrong kingship, as it were, from over the people. And secondly, he says, not only will he remove those that do things falsely in their leadership and teaching, he will secondly rescue his people. Again, verse 10. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. What God says he'll do in rescue them, he will remove the external threats, which come from the bad shepherding, but it'll also move the internal threats. Now, the external threats are mentioned in the following verses. Uh, There were places that they were scattered, and he will bring them to their own land, verse 12. As a shepherd looks after the scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. 
They also are not fed properly. He will provide them with food. Verse 13, I'll bring them out of the nations. I'll gather them from the countries. I'll bring them to their own land. I will pasture them on the mountain of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing. They'll lie down in good grazing land. And there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. He'll rescue them where they were scattered. He'll feed them where they were starved. And he will care for them where they were not cared. Verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and will make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost, bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. You see, when God steps in, there will be a complete reversal of what the bad kings, the bad shepherds have done. Where they were scattered and not fed and exploited and not cared for. Verse 4, he will gather and feed and care for them. These weren't the sheep who were lying there by that field in Devon. These were the sheep who were cared for and nurtured. And if you want another illustration, here's a strange one. Because once when I was walking the Lake District, I ended up walking in a flock of sheep. Uh, it happened because we were driven down all together to a dry stone wall. So I ended up walking with the shepherd down towards a farmland. And I said, yeah, yeah, what are you doing with the shepherds, with the sheep? I said, I'm, I'm interested in they're coming off the hill at this time of day. He said, we're scanning them. I said, I'm sorry? He said, the vets waiting down were scanning all the sheep to see which are having triplets, which are having twins, which are having single lambs. And I thought, isn't that strange? You look on the hills, don't you? And you have this sort of picture that they just munch their way happily all year and no one cares for them. And here was a shepherd taking them down, ready to get an ultrasound machine out to see which lambs were there. But isn't that interesting? Because actually God has said, I'm caring for people more than you can possibly imagine. What the shepherds didn't do, I'm doing. Now, it's a bad metaphor because I'm not sure he's saying, I'm scanning my people. But you get the picture. Here is the perfect shepherd who will rescue them. And do what false shepherds, false kings could never do. He'll deal with external threats, but he'll also deal with internal threats. And this is quite fascinating. Look again, the second half of verse 16. I will shepherd my flock with justice. I will shepherd my flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another. Between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on good pasture? Must you also trample the feet of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must the flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you've muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away, I will save my flock and they'll no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. See, God has not only said he's going to deal rightly with the leadership. He's also going to deal with the people rightly. And here, strangely, he says to all his people, the people of Israel, my flock. But within his flock, there is his real flock those who've been treated badly by others those who've been butted and shoulder butted and hit it with horns so that those individuals can benefit at the expense of others who were weak and thin and who went to the water and it had become mudded and went to the pasture and it had become trampled 
And who in that picture were the authentic believers? They were the ones who were treated badly. They were the ones who were butted and flanked and went to drink from muddied water and walk over trampled pasture. And what God says is when I come and act, I will not only give a right shepherd, but I will deal internally with the threats that stop you being my people. And although we live the other side of the cross, isn't that brilliant? Because I guess at times we can feel as if we're those who go to muddied water to drink. We're those who feel that we battle on trampled pasture. We can feel that the voice seeking to be biblical in a flock which has turned away is derided and mocked. You all have had that experience. I've had experience many times. In every job I've done, in every place, there is opposition to authentic ministry. And we've got to be careful too because we can set ourselves up with false brownie points being weak, trampled sheep. Because sometimes we can behave like those in the flock who headbutt others and who don't behave rightly under the word with one another. There is hope, but there is also challenge. And whilst we are the other side of the cross, the place of hope is exactly the same. Between verses 15 and 20, there are 15 repetitions of the word I. I, 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 I. How will this change happen? Who will do it? It will be God who does it. And the way in which he will do it is through a king. He'll do it through a king. Verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God says, I will shepherd my sheep. He will do it, but he will do it through a Davidic king. That is how he will shepherd his sheep. Now, being Christians, I know exactly what you've done already. You've done a fast forward to John chapter 10. And you go, oh, yep, I know. Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. Jesus says, oh, the sheep know my voice, they'll follow me. And I, I, this is the answer, isn't it, Simon? And the answer, of course, is in part yes. It is in part yes. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But most of us have been told, haven't we, when we've looked at John 10, to have in our mind the picture of a Middle Eastern shepherd. That's not a bad picture to have in mind. There's a chap in our congregation who worked in the Middle East and remembers early one morning seeing a shepherd get up at sunrise and call the name of different sheep. And they came out of different pens and they just followed him out to pasture. And at the end of the day, they came back and he said goodnight to them or whatever you do. And they, off, they went to their little different places. And loads of sermons we hear and say, and that's what it's like with Jesus. He knows our name and we follow him. And that is true. But if we leave the picture there, we don't do justice to the words of Jesus or the words of Ezekiel chapter 34. Because when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is on the one hand picking up that phrase, I am. The phrase that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the character of God. He's saying, I am divine, whenever he uses that. But also when he adds to that the good shepherd, 
The picture he has in mind is not simply the contemporary Middle Eastern shepherd. It is the promised good shepherd of Ezekiel chapter 34. And that shepherd, you see, is the Davidic divine king. It's not just the nature of shepherding. It's the identity of the shepherd. And that's the picture he has in mind. As such, he is the divine shepherd king who himself has come to deal with the false teachers and the false shepherds. Who himself will work out who really is his flock amongst those who profess his name. And through him will be both that removal and that rescue. Yes, it's Jesus. But when we understand Jesus through the lens of Ezekiel 34, our understanding of what he's come to do is that much greater. And what will be the result of this God, shepherd king, who will remove false teachers, who will rescue his sheep and sort out his true flock? Well, there will be restoration. And the restoration given here is always in the language of the covenant, what God had promised. So let's look at our last few verses and see what he says as a result of his promise. Verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so they will live in the desert and sleep in forests in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers and season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crop. The people will be secure in the land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who have enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They'll live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they'll no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, will be my, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? A picture of peace and blessing and covenant security, which we read later on, is going to be eternal and everlasting. It's a total reversal of the experience of those to whom God was writing through Ezekiel. The exploited, ravished, ravished by wild animals, solid food, mudded water. All those who experience that reality will now no longer be plundered or devoured by wild animals. Crops will be provided, famine will be no more. It's a wonderful picture. The land restored, the people restored. Then they will know covenant blessings. They will know that he is the covenant Lord. He'll do it all through a Davidic king whose covenant and rule will last forever. And we could say, and they all went home happily ever after. But in the Old Testament, in the experience of God's people, that never happened, did it? Never. We'll see a bit later on in the uh, final talk, of course... When they go back from the land, it wasn't anything like this. Oh, there were moments of good, yes, but every time it was a battle, wasn't it? A battle to rebuild the temple, it was never as good. A battle to rebuild the walls, but it didn't really work. And after the Babylonians, the Persians came and the Greeks came and they had their effect. And then the Romans came and they occupied the land. And there was still starvation and famine and difficulty and false teaching. 
You see, there were great promises of God, unshakable promises of God, because God had made them I, 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 I. But in the experience of God's people then, they never happened. Because all God's promises are yes in Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the Davidic king. He will restore. He will rescue. He will judge rightly and bring all the covenant blessings of what it means to be in him, ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth. And it means that we have more reason to hope, even than those in the days of Ezekiel. We have more certainty because of his death and his resurrection, even though we may ask the same questions, even though we may feel that we drink muddied water and try and eat from muddied pasture, even though we see around false teaching and those who lead powerfully the flock wrongly, even though we see division and difficulty amongst those who call themselves Christians and authentic Christians treated badly, even if we wonder, whether our sin can be forgiven if we've realized how serious it is and we're deserving of judgment. The answer is yes in Christ. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. And I will do it through my Davidic king. And so when things feel difficult, when we feel small and insignificant, when it's difficult to stand up and hold out God's truth in this world, both evangelistically and within and amongst those who call themselves Christians, when we are marginalized and ridiculed because we hold the label evangelical, that is, we're Bible people. When, as could happen, we may face arrest and the comfortable complacency with which we can sing songs of rescue is challenged. That's why we need Ezekiel 34, isn't it? Today, that this God who speaks, the majestic, holy, powerful God of chapter 1 who speaks in judgment, speaks in rescue, I will remove false teachers. I will restore my people. And the result be all that I've promised, a place, a people, a blessing, and a king. Because you alone can rescue. You alone can save. To you alone belongs the highest praise. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for the unshakable promises that you made in the midst of difficulty and disaster. And thank you that we can hold on to them because you made them and they are fulfilled through that Davidic shepherd king. As we look to him, even while we have the challenge of drinking muddied water and feeding from trampled pasture, may we do so with the certainty that you alone can rescue and you alone can save. Amen.